1: Welcome listeners to episode 141 of the Odd Nauseam Podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle. I'm down here in the bunker in Vomitorium. I can never get my card. South. South, south. 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 Yes, I should have that down by now. And I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Dr. David Noe. You look like you're feeling good today, Dave. I am.
2: All I'm, right, I'm relaxed. I um, have finished up some important work. Yeah, I finished writing a final exam. Okay, and uh, I hope it's as much fun for the students to complete as it was for me to compose. Oh, excellent. Good deal. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Excellent.
1: Are you also are you working on a translation right now?
2: Oh, do, am I? Do
1: you have like these things like uh, like piled up? Other on you?
2: constant. Really? Yes. I feel you know the weight of the translation world on my shoulders yeah so the John Aerosmith uh plans for holy war yes is done okay we're waiting for it to be indexed and it's going to be released this spring uh god willing yeah and uh the Samuel Rutherford is done it's down to 724 pages I just got back the the uh, corrections from uh, my friend Joseph I'm working through his corrections okay it's going to be a little bit longer before we get it all hammered out but it's going to come out this year as well that's fantastic I'm just yeah. doing a lot of proofing and checking and double checking, and it's tedious work. That sound, that part of it sounds very, very tedious. But yeah. more glamorous than winning an Olympic gold medal. Is it really? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the paparazzi, I'm fighting them off at oh, every I turn. I bet
1: exactly. All those translation groupies, they're, That's they're correct. around every corner, right? Now,
2: you're not as uh, sartorially impressive as you were on our previous uh, our previous date. Oh, you don't think so? No. Oh. Before you had that nice shirt, which was the the mistletoe with a life preserver. Yeah. Now you have something that's kind of, I would say, a forest green.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's a, it's still it's kind of casual, nice teaching attire. Again, uh, like yeah. last time, I'm coming straight from the, yeah. From the classroom.
2: Yeah. Sweater forest sweater. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I would say. How are you feeling, Jeff?
1: I'm feeling really good, man. You cannot you cannot beat this this sunshine. Unbelievable. I was talking to a friend of mine. Uh, was talking about how, um, asked him what they did over the weekend. I said, oh, I played some tennis over the no weekend. No way. He tennis so, tennis outside on what? February five or something like That's that. That's incredible. It's, it's
2: crazy. 58 yep. degrees is what we're looking at today Man. here yeah. in the mitten.
1: It's incredible. So yeah, mm-hmm. I hear that the, the groundhog didn't see a shadow and he was right this time. We're good.
2: Yep. Excellent. So, uh, we have mm-hmm. a, a special episode today, don't we? Would Who's you... coming into the vomitorium, the yeah. studio pretty soon.
1: It's a, it's a super guest. I yes. think this is the third appearance of this distinguished gentleman on this podcast. Uh um, our friend, former professor, former colleague, um, mentor, mentor, jack of all trades, yes, uh, incredible guy, uh, Dr. Ken Bratt yes, is joining us today. Yep. And
2: we gave this fellow a nickname, didn't we?
1: we Strider.
2: That's correct. <laughs> right. So, what's the story behind that? Jeff?
1: Well, I, we we had we had both uh, we had both traveled with him.
2: Correct. Uh, overseas. I went to uh, Italy with him once and Greece. Yes. And I think you went to both destinations or I, only Greece. I did.
1: I went to Greece with him as a student. Okay. And then went to Italy with him as a colleague. Okay. And we called him Strider because that guy can walk.
2: Yes, he can. Yes. You better have a good breakfast if you're going to see Rome <laughs> right. with Ken
1: Bratt. Right. He's a he's a tall drink of water. Yep. He's got long strides, yep. but he, he was also tireless.
2: Yes, he's not an especially young man. No. I'm not saying senescent. But that guy has some walking stamina. He does. Right. he just walk you right into the ground.
1: Exactly. And it was, it, I remember going to, when I was with him in Italy, mm-hmm. uh, he hadn't been to this, I forget the location, but he hadn't been there for wait years. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. There's
2: some place he hadn't been? No, he hadn't been there for years. Oh, okay. Right?
1: And it was kind of a tricky, a tricky thing we were looking for. And he, he dipped into his like thirty-year-old memory, and he was making twists and turns. He was like he was like Theseus coming out of the labyrinth, <laughs> and like left, right, left, 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 grabbing
2: right. no thread, no no right? thread. Right. Thread was in the distance, and
1: like after like sixteen uh, precise turns, there we were. That's right. And he goes, oh yeah, I remember this. Thing. Yeah,
2: phenomenal, <laughs> phenomenal. Yeah. One of my best memories is sitting at the Hotel Filipos, uh, gazing up at the Acropolis yeah. in the evening, eating Spanish peanuts with him. Yeah, you know the kinds with the little thin yes, uh, red shells his own wrapper. Right. Yeah. Just the, the kind of thing that this loves to get stuck in your teeth. Yeah. Uh, having some adult beverages and enjoying some other things. And the uh, yeah. sun is setting over the Acropolis. Just phenomenal. Yeah.
1: And the, and the, um, the just the sheer amount of stuff that guy knows. Yeah. I, I, so, I love traveling with him because he knew everything.
2: So, we've had him here for, um what was it? A, a Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Philippi? Yep. No No, it well, was- um, uh, Something like On the Road to Philippi. Yes. We talked to him, to him about the archaeology of Philippi. That's right. That's and then right. another archaeological episode, which was on the.
1: Um, I'm forgetting how it was. That's what? okay.
2: It was on the catacombs.
1: That's right. The catacombs. Right. And today he's talking to us about his, uh, what we might call it kind of his earliest right. expertise, uh, Herodotus.
2: Yes. Father of history or father of lies. Yes. Right. And
1: we'll see where he comes down.
2: That's correct. <laughs> so uh, let's get right into it and uh, welcome Ken to the program.
1: Thanks, Ken, so much for coming in. We were just talking before you 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 came down into the bunker that this is the, the your third appearance on uh, the podcast. And okay, so you had been here talking to us about uh, the catacombs, and then we also had a conversation with you about the the archaeology of, of Philippi, uh-huh. and now we're going back to. Uh, I think I may have, I may have described it in our, our in our intro um, as maybe your 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 earliest expertise. Would you say is that is Herodotus was that kind of the the, the corner of the classics where you maybe you you found yourself. Uh, the most comfortable, or yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: I think that's that's fair game. Okay. Um, I mean, I loved Homer as well, and on the Latin side, Virgil. But uh, of the three authors, I loved most in my early years in classics, those were, those were top. Yeah, and Herodotus certainly.
1: Yeah, I wonder if you could if you could tell us a little bit about like what drew you to Herodotus and so um, you did you read Herodotus as an undergraduate or was it something that you encountered in graduate school or right I may have told you before I had
0: a late start in Greek in my junior year of college mm-hmm. I took first year Greek and Robert Otten our favorite professor uh, told me that I should have six more Greek courses in my senior year in order to. F- complete a major I followed his advice of course (laughs) and so Herodotus and Thucydides was a combined course in those days so in the spring of 1968 I studied Herodotus and Thucydides for the first time with um, Rich Weavers and here's the book I still have my original textbook Amy Barber's selections from Herodotus which I think I used the time you took the course didn't I David is that right
2: yeah, that's right, and I even have a uh, one here, which is the copy owned by another one of our colleagues, Rich Weavers, whom you just mentioned. Okay. So this yeah. is University of Oklahoma. It's an old textbook, but it's really phenomenal. I it would is say. very good, and it was later reprinted in paperback.
0: So I required it, I think, in all the courses I taught on Herodotus.
2: That's right, because you just wanted to uh, break our pocketbooks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so when when um. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more, what, what, what was it about Herodotus, uh, was, it, uh, was, it, was it style, was it theme, what, what, uh, what made you kind of connect with this particular author?
0: I didn't connect deeply with Herodotus until I was in grad school and then um, because our general requirements um, included a special author Greek, a special author Latin, I chose Herodotus largely because we had to master the secondary literature on our author as well as the uh, text itself. Um, My other favorite author being Homer, the secondary literature was way too massive. And so um, actually I sort of combined both interests by pursuing in my dissertation years the homeric influence on Herodotus, especially in speeches and scenes of consultation. So what drew me was in part um, that very practical concern about the massive scholarship that attended Homer in those days. Of course there's been a lot on Herodotus too, Uh, But in addition to that, I I just found the narrative of Herodotus and also the Ionic dialect that he uses uh, so winsome, so delightful, uh, so varied and and complex. And I found the humanity of his approach to cultures other than the Greeks a very
2: uh, attractive feature. So what was the process like of writing the dissertation? I mean, in one sense... people in our position your position it's very very similar to write a dissertation there's the grind there's the research there's the false starts and so forth the back and forth but specifically writing a dissertation on herodotus do you do you have memories of what that was like and- oh i have very pain,
0: painful <laughs> memories i i, I think uh, all of us who write dissertations at one stage or, or another in our lives find it uh, the most grueling experience of our lives and the least satisfying because although you enter it with great love for your subject, after several years you find yourself uh, putting the material in a drawer and ignoring it as long as you possibly can. In my case, I started it in my third year of graduate school. I got a, a point uh, my first teaching job at Colby College in uh, uh, my fourth year of graduate school. Immediately I had to face then my first teaching experiences, which took a huge amount of preparation. And before long, the Herodotus uh, project was in the drawer and uh, not to be recovered for some time. So I worked on it in the summers. I lost interest in it for several years and it was a long time before I completed it. After I came to Calvin, I was still working on the project and uh, ultimately finished it. I, I was happy with the resolution of the project but very unhappy about the process.
2: Well, that's familiar. I remember walking into your office as an undergraduate, and there was a little cartoon on the desk, which I think maybe your brother gave you. My brother-in-law. It was yes, was a little picture of Herod of mm-hmm. you, and I think it said "Wainy Weedy Calcuttawey Postremum Heroditi." That's correct. Which is, I came, I saw, I kicked Herodotus's Well, you know what? So. Yes, I received that
0: the year I uh, defended my thesis and finally finished the project.
1: So you did most of your your work uh, on that project when you were away from... Princeton then? Yes. Okay.
0: I had about a year of uh, preparation. One other complication was that my original advisor, Bob Connor, uh, with whom I was a very close friend, unfortunately suffered um, separation of his retina during my process and had to give up the project. So I was transferred to Jim Luce, another history prof, uh, specialized in Roman history, but he kindly took up my project. and, And so the change of advisors also involved... Significant changes in the plan, and uh, that set me back a bit. But Jim Luce was a wonderful colleague who helped me finish the the project eventually.
1: So were either uh, either of those 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 gentlemen? Um, well, so you say the um, the one was an expert in Roman history. Yeah. Um, was the, the, the previous advisor uh, a Herodotian scholar or?
0: No, both of them were Greek historian. Well, Jim Luce was both Greek and Roman. He has a very fine book called The Greek Historians. And so he, he worked on both sides, but his primary specialties were on the Roman side. Bob Connor was more a specialist on Greek rhetoric, uh, and, uh, but, but certainly very well qualified. There was no specialist in Herodotus at the time I was there. So I worked with Bob and, and with
2: Jim. So that was wise on your part. Pick an author where the secondary literature is comparatively smaller and pick an author where there's no expert. So (laughs) in the department, so you can say whatever you please almost at that point. And actually,
0: I never had a graduate seminar
2: in Herodotus either. So most of what I did was uh, independent. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. So we're going to get into the meat of the episode before too long and this uh, really fascinating article by, what's this guy's name, Jeff?
1: uh, Evans. Yes.
2: And I think it's entitled uh, Herodotus, Father of history, or father of lies. Uh, But before we get into that, I thought maybe um, you could say a few things, Ken, also about what it has been like to teach Herodotus over the years, and uh, specifically a couple jumping off points. Uh, One is, if you want to say anything about the Ionic dialect, which you have already referenced. And secondly, I have a memory of uh, being an undergrad in your class where we're using the Barber text for reading Greek. But then you assigned um, a translation. We were supposed to read the whole of it in translation. For some reason, I think Rawlinson was the um, yeah. was the translator. Yeah. And I was I was sitting outside on a sunny September day uh, <laughs> at Calvin and and reading the translation. And a friend of mine walked by, a young woman, and she said, "Oh, what are you reading?" So I'm reading Herodotus' Histories. She said, "What's it about?" And I said, "Well, I'm in the the current part is where the guy is crouching behind the door while the king's <laughs> wife." takes off all her clothes. And in the course of trying to tell her this story, I myself became embarrassed and she looked at me pertly and said, oh, that, that sounds like a, a wonderful thing to be studying. That was the end of the conversation.
0: That was not Tara, apparently.
2: No, that was not my wife. No. Her name was Andrea. She's oh, not okay. listening. But... Yeah. Well, that's the one
0: of the delightful things about Herodotus. You turn the page and you never know what you're getting into. Uh, because he's interested in everything from sheep who have tails heavy enough to be carried in a, in a trailer uh, to the urinating practices of uh, Egyptian men and women. Uh, so uh, in addition to the great stories of the Persians and the Greeks, we have all of this anthropological and, and geographical content, which is among his great charms. What's it been like to teach? Well, you know better than I because you were a student. I enjoyed every time I taught it. We used to offer it on uh, uh, every other year, and um, I recall five classes since 1990. Had some excellent students in it, always very satisfying to lead them into Herodotus for the first time, partly because of the- Present company excluded, right? uh,
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, uh, one other of the delightful things in it was uh, assigning the whole of the text in translation. I started with Rawlinson, which was my first text, and but of course that translation is from 1858. Uh, in my later years, I used David Green's translation, and most recently Robin Waterfield's, which are both excellent as well. Uh, but I always had the the purpose of uh, familiarizing the class with the entire body of work, even though. It would be most unreasonable to expect that much translation in an undergraduate course.
1: Now, um, <clears throat> in your your original research, you, you said you are you're particularly interested in uh, Homeric uh, uh, influence uh, on on Herodotian, uh, style. So, were your were your interests um, more rooted in kind of the, the literary aspect of it, and, and not so much in kind of questions of of uh, histo- historicity of Herodotus?
0: Yes, I was most interested in the literary influence of Homer on Herodotus. Of course, some aspects are obvious when you have a catalog of ships or a mustering of the troops or a Perinosus or an Aristea in which one hero uh, has the uh, front position in the narrative for some time. All of these things must have come from Homer. Uh, we must remember, too, that Herodotus is the first to attempt a work of this scale, in fact, twice as big as Homer's scale, in 300 years since the Homeric poems themselves. And so it's fairly obvious that there must have been uh, direct influence there. And even though Herodotus is working in prose and not in poetry, the dialectical interests are similar. There's a good deal of dactylic hexameter in the histories, especially the form of the oracles, which he quotes with some frequency. And so, uh, to me, it seemed very likely that the heroic aspects of hist- of the histories uh, de- derived directly from that Ionian tradition.
2: Should we maybe read the the, the proemium to the work? Uh, can I read that in Greek? And Absolutely. Can you can maybe read the Rawlinson translation and, oh, yeah. and then give us some some commentary. Is that, is that good, Jeff? Sounds good to me. All right, so here we go. Herodotu helicarnesea, sister rea sapadexis hede, hos meta tagonomina, exanthropon, tochrono, exile exitela, genetai, meta ergamagala, tecaithomasta, ta menhelesi, tada barbaroisi, apodicenta, aclea genetai, tata ala, kai dihain, aitien, epolemesan, aleloisi.
0: And here's George Rollinson's translation. These are the researches of of Herodotus of Halicarnassus, which he publishes in the hope of thereby preserving from decay the remembrance of what men have done, and of preventing the great and wonderful actions of the Greeks and the barbarians from losing their due meed of glory, and withal to put on record what were the grounds of feud.
1: What what, what do you take from that that opening that opening section? Well, what is, I mean, what is Herodotus, Herodotus up to? And um, is he really, uh, in terms of kind of the time and place that he came from, is he doing something completely new? Um, is, there, is there any sense of, of that he's uh, relying, as you said, on, certainly on Homer for literary means, but is, this, is, is he really presenting something that is just kind of is unseen in the Mediterranean or the ancient world? It is previously unseen in
0: terms of its scale and its uh, elaboration the goals he specifies are two one is to preserve from decay the remembrance of what has been done and he specifies he's thinking both of wonderful actions and monuments and secondly to put on record what is the cause of the war Uh, now that means that his purposes are different than Thucydides and we can talk about the contrast Thucydides criticized Herodotus implicitly by stating his purpose as to create a work that would be valuable for all time. I would say the difference is essentially this. Herodotus' aim is to memorialize and heroize. Thucydides' aim is to instruct um, in a way that will be useful for politicians in ages to come. His focus is much narrower than Herodotus's. Herodotus uses the word Aclea, which is a direct allusion to the Homeric um, idea of kleos or fame, glory, and by uh, expressing the wish to preserve from a failure of fame what has been achieved, both by Greeks and barbarians, Herodotus is stating an aim which is both Homeric and um, Pan-Hellenic. Uh, his interests lie beyond Athens; they lie beyond politics. Uh, And in that respect, it's something
2: brand new. That's really interesting. And I wonder the difference you have identified between Herodotus and Thucydides. This is jumping ahead a little bit maybe to some of the final questions we'll deal with in this episode. But do you think that that difference, Thucydides is writing for politicians for all time. Herodotus is writing to make a record and to delight and entertain. Does that in, in part, large or small, explain why Herodotus is much more read than Thucydides?
0: Yes, and for those who read in the Greek, Thucydides is much harder to read (laughs) than Herodotus, so that too is a factor. Yeah, Thucydides is, unless you're deeply interested in military tactics and politics, a boring read in comparison with Herodotus. Because as I've already said, Herodotus has on every page a variety of new characters, new events, exotic topics, uh, so if you're interested in how Egyptians mummify crocodiles, you can find that in Herodotus. You won't find anything of the sort in Thucydides.
2: Yeah. After I, after I left, uh, Calvin, and your safe tutelage and went to graduate school, I was thrown into a Herodotus course with uh, Professor Jonathan Goldstein. We spent three quarters of the first semester just on the proemium, <laughs> trying to figure out exactly what does he mean. Uh-huh. But after the proemium, um, what about the criticism that Herodotus uh, says that the the origin of the war between the Greeks and the Persians is all about women stealing?
0: Well, as you remember uh, at the beginning of, of of chapter one, he says this is the Persian account of the origins of the violence. So he as often he does, he cites uh, an account that he disagrees with. He cites in fact, um, the Persian stories of how this war began, it's just one more in a sequence of violations of East-West relations, which in each generation involve the theft of a woman, the rape of a of a woman from the other side. But then he goes on to say, I, in contrast, after he's recorded these uh, Persian accounts, I, in contrast, will begin with the one I know who began violence against the Greeks, namely Croesus. And so the point is that Herodotus is open to recording accounts with which he does not agree. Partly, I think, because remembering how people recall their past is a historical fact of some importance, apart from whether it's true. So that Thucydides' standards, which are to verify the actual facts of any particular episode, is not of interest to Herodotus. He's interested in recording how people account for their past. And thus, even when he disagrees, as he often does, he enters the narrative frequently as a critic of other people's accounts. Uh, By recording those other accounts, his own account has a one might say, a greater validity, Mm. even though he's wrong also on Mm. many of his own
2: judgments. If I understand, to summarize what you're saying, Thucydides wants to establish what actually happened. Herodotus is more interested at many places in establishing what do people think happened? Yes. And he quotes, uh, I
0: believe there are some 900 personal names, uh, either sources or names mentioned by his sources in the course of his book. I don't know if the names have ever been counted in Thucydides, but I I suspect they're significantly less than 900. So, Herodotus has taken immense trouble to travel and to interview, and then somehow to notate everything that he's heard. An immense um, dictionary of ancient mythology and geography and uh, genealogy, all of which is subordinated to an overlay of historical sequence.
1: Ken, I wonder if you could talk about um, you know this this notion of, of East and West. And uh, I remember I, I, I taught I, I taught a little bit of Herodotus just as, as kind of a short selection, and we and we we covered the um, uh, the intro. And I remember from that um, it a student being surprised that Herodotus would be interested in recording the uh, the events and deeds of the barbarians. And I've noticed that too when I've taught when I've taught the Iliad, uh, students are often surprised that you could uh, you could certainly read that poem as being much more pro Trojan than pro Greek, and they're surprised that the that the uh, Greek author wouldn't have kind of a natural Hellenic bias. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you, if you could talk about do you see in Herodotus that kind of that dividing line of East and West cropping up? Is he interested um, either deliberately or incidentally kind of creating? Uh, a a distinctive Hellenic identity for the Greeks as opposed to a Persian or uh, Eastern identity. Do we get kind of that notion of the West coming from Herodotus or is that something that you see coming later?
0: It is a, a contrast that appears in Herodotus, though it's much more typical of later authors. Herodotus especially sees a difference between Persians and Greeks as the difference between monarchies and free societies. However, we must remember that when he talks about the East, he's talking not just about the Persians, but in the course of his narrative, he's talking about the Lydians, the Egyptians, the Scythians, the Babylonians. And so he complexit, uh, he, he makes much more complex the picture of who the East is. And in general, when he uses the term barbaroi, the barbarians, He's talking about simply people who speak a language other than Greek. He is not using the word in the pejorative connotation that we give it. Although at a couple of points he criticizes foreigners for having uh, habits or customs that are unacceptable from the Greek perspective. So he has a kind of Catholicity of tastes in exploring the identities and the customs of other people. And he doesn't divide the whole world into just East and West, but he is ready to make contrasts between Persian and Greek lifestyles, for sure. Uh, one interesting aspect is this carries over also into his account of Egypt in Book 2, where he says, in Egypt, everything's done in the opposite direction as from the Greeks. Uh, and of course, some of these conclusions that he has reached are based on pretty minimal information uh, and inadequate analysis, but it's interesting that he is interested in these contrasts.
2: He's a fabulous storyteller. It seems like he's the kind of individual that if you bumped into him at the local pub, right, he would bend your ear for hours with his large collection of uh, tales that he's put together. Is that your impression?
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. I would love to travel with a person like Herodotus. He has so many questions about what he's seeing and hearing and he has a huge repository of information on which he's drawing, so he will sometimes cross-check the accounts of X with Y, and record both, and then give his opinion on which is right, if, if either. Uh, so yeah, he, he's the kind of traveler you would love to see something do with. Because he comes to it with a with an energetic mind and a vivid imagination, mm-hmm. and how he remembers all this, I have no imagine, I have no indication.
2: So uh, the work was finished, and then you know, I'm I'm not going to. Uh, you probably know in in full detail. I'm not going to like test you because you were my professor, but. <laughs> Uh, In the mid-420s, it was first, is that right, it was first performed in Athens, and could you tell us a little bit about the the process by which it received its division into nine books and its early reception? Uh, It seems to have been uh, finished sometime in the early 420s.
0: The last uh, mentioned event that can be dated in the histories is in 430, actually, the beginning of the Peloponnesian War. Some uh, have speculated that he may have died in the Great Plague in 429 or 428. More than likely, portions of his work, if not the bulk of it, had been performed in public recitations at places like Delphi and Olympia and other places where Greeks would gather and a standard form of, of, of entertainment was to hear either rhapsodes reciting Homer or travelers reciting their tales. And so Herodotus's work seems to have originated in short set pieces. Um, notice the word apodexis in the prologue, which does not mean publication as it's often translated. Even Rawlinson uses publication. It means performance or display or manifestation. And so when he says this is a work of displaying his research, historia, uh, originally meant research or intellectual investigation. He's talking originally about presenting something to a live audience in an orally-oriented society uh, which will both entertain and instruct them about their past, and especially the great things in their past. Uh, How this all came to be stitched together into one massive narrative is debated, and when such uh, stitching occurred is debated, and which parts of it were earlier than other parts is debated the division of books doesn't come in until the Alexandrian library in the Hellenistic period when just because they divided it into nine scrolls and there were nine muses, they thought, Oh, let's give each book a muse. It begins with Clio. So you've got the muse of history in book one, uh, the muse of Epic in book nine. But how do you account for the fact that book four is the, I think it's the muse of dance and, um, uh, and and where would you put the muse of comedy? Uh, so, uh, the names of the muses have nothing to do with the content of the books. It's just a convenient way to refer to the books without numerals.
2: Is there any? Thank you. Is there anything uh, to it that it was an honorific kind of that that it was so impressive, or is it that it was given those those names, or is that also kind of something from? It's
0: conjectural. Um, it is interesting that most other works that were divided into parts, including Homer were uh, identified by uh, letters of the alphabet rather than by names of of muses so it's not inconceivable that this was a special thing reserved for herodotus i don't know of any other parallel but um, i think that's speculation
1: is it what do we know of herodotus's uh, biography and and how much of that is is can we nail down historically or uh, like where was he from? How does he wind up in, in Athens? And uh, do we know anything about that?
0: We know something about it. Much of the material comes from his own work, so you can read into the histories, his own claims about where he traveled, for example. Uh, uh, our, our most expansive bio- biographical information comes from an 11th century source, the Suda, which was in effect the Oxford Classical Dictionary of its day. Uh, and the Suda reports that he was born around 484 in Halicarnassus. Halicarnassus is the modern Turkish city of Bodrum on the southwestern uh, edge of the uh, of modern state of Turkey, right on the Aegean Sea. It was a port city. Uh, and so his early youth was spent in a, a very cosmopolitan environment. Technically, it was a Doric city, although... Uh, much of what was written there was done in the I- Ionic dialect for reasons of circulation, I suppose. Um, it is said, well, 484 is also an interesting year because in that period, Halicarnassus, of course, would have been under the control of Persia. And thus, uh, he knows what he's talking about when he describes Persian government, for example, and the major figures of Persian leadership. It was also a year in which the their leader, the ruler of uh, Halicarnassus was a woman named Artemisia who plays a major role in the Battle of Salamis in Book 8. And so his admiration for this Greek woman who's fighting on the Persian side as the admiral of ships sent from Halicarnassus um, may, account, may, may be accounted for in terms of his birth. At an early stage, according to the Suda. Uh, Herodotus' family was exiled, perhaps for resisting uh, political authority. He is said to have spent many years on Samos, and you may remember from the narrative that he's very interested in Polycrates, the tyrant of Samos, and other key events in the history of that island. At some point, he seems to have traveled to Egypt. Uh, He seems to have traveled to Babylon, according to his own account. He seems to have traveled to the Black Sea region, Um, and he ended his life not in Athens, though he was briefly there during the 440s, that is, during the very period when the Parthenon was being constructed, when Athens' golden age was at its peak. Uh, Allegedly knew Pericles, allegedly knew Sophocles, and may have been friends with them. But he ended his life in the Athenian colony of Thurae, which is in the instep of Italy, um, Calabria, uh, southwestern Italy. Uh, that's what we know about his biography. Uh, I think the key things to remember are that his orid, that his birthplace, is uh, under Persian control, but very much in connection, in contact with Greek culture as well as international shipping. And so, among his associates, presumably were traders uh, who may have facilitated his travel but certainly brought back tales of exotic
2: places that he then remembers and records in his in his stories. That's very fascinating Ken, thank you. So a couple of quick questions. Have you been to Bodrum? Never been to Bodrum. Would love to be there. Closest I've gotten is uh,
0: Didyma and okay. Miletus. And how about Thury-E in the boot? Never been to Thury-E, though. I drove by it once, I yeah. should have stopped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, never thought of stopping on that day. So a a question here that we maybe can squeeze in before the ads is uh, this. In Helicarnassus and Ionia, I understand the tradition prior to Herodotus, um, at least this is what the books say, was investigation of scientific sorts of things. The Ionian philosophers, they're known for that. Meanwhile, in Athens, in an Attic context, you have drama and other things developing. How does Herodotus fit in uh, to that conversation, that discussion?
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, Unlike the so-called logographers of Ionia, uh, Herodotus is interested not so much with cosmological questions like Thales and Aximander and the like, uh, nor so much in tragedy as a form, and of course that evolves in Athens only at first, and not before the 470s in terms of what we have surviving. He's interested in the whole world and in its past. Uh, he may have had predecessors who uh, duplicate some of the features of his account, most uh, most notably um, Hecateus of Miletus, whose periodos teis geis, his uh, uh, circuit around the world, survives in fragmentary form. But it seems that his um, predecessors in this area were primarily interested in mythology and geography and genealogy, and not as much with what we might call history. Uh, so Herodotus is a real um, a visionary in terms of the variety and the nature of his work. There is no question that Athenian drama had an impact on what he wrote, uh, but that impact would have come later in his life, presumably after some of his work, if not all of it, had been had been formulated. So one can't deny the tragic influences in various scenes in Herodotus. But Homer is a stronger influence, uh, even though he's working in
2: a prose medium. Speaking of prose mediums, Jeff.
1: It's time for the ads.
2: This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by the good folks at Hackett Publishing. Jeff, give us just a few nuggets of wisdom, if you will, like a six piece about uh, Hackett.
1: Yes, well, I think uh, anybody who's in uh, has any experience with um, you know buying books uh, in the the realm of academia knows how ridiculous the prices can be. Absolutely, it, uh, uh, and one one of the things I love about Hackett. Is that um, whatever you find on their website in their catalog, you know that it's going to be high value. It's going to be um, it's going to be worth reading. Uh, great translators, and it's going to be very very affordable. Right. Yeah. So um, that's that alone is worth checking out. Hackett Publishing. Those
2: are your nuggets of wisdom. Yes. Now we were approached, Jeff, by another publisher. You may not remember this. Oh. Right. Oh yeah. Oh, that's I do remember Sorry. that. But remind me. It was Jacket Publishing. Oh, J A C K E T T. Yeah. Only dust covers. <laughs> Sorry. No paperbacks, no hardcovers. Yeah. And you know what their motto was? What was it? Smell 'em. That's vellum. <laughs> So uh, what did we do with jacket publishing? Oh
1: man, those guys were worthless. Yeah, I they, mean
2: they were persistent though. They were. Check out our dust covers. They were saying. Yeah, but yeah. we uh, we stiff armed <laughs> them, right? We, we did. Exactly. And we went with Hackett instead.
1: Exactly. I and mean, I think I think we made the right. I think so too. Yes.
2: H a c k e t t. So if our listeners go there yep. and they check out the wide selection, yep. with um the Euripides, Bach, with Elvis on the cover and yep. so forth. What should they do next? Well,
1: they should uh, find the the, select, the the books they want, drop them into that little grocery basket, type in that uh, coupon code AN2024, and Dave, that will get them.
2: 20% off, and that's it? No, 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 that's not it. It's okay. Also free shipping. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. You're, you're not going to get that at uh, MississippiRiver.com, no are you? No way, not
1: even close. This episode of Ad Nauseam is also brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Dave, would you share a few nuggets of wisdom about Ratio Coffee?
2: I see the nuggets on the other foot now, <laughs> that's, isn't that's it? That's right. I got up this morning. Yep. I went to my kitchen. Of course. I had a lot of work to do today. Yeah. Got the eggs and bacon going. And then I turned to my Ratio 8 and I thought, what would life be like with an unreliable uh, coffee machine? And, and a that,
1: shiver went down your spine? That's, yes.
2: <laughs> that's the n- shiver me timbers. That's yeah. the nightmare scenario right there. But yeah. thankfully... I don't have to contemplate it. I ground some beans in my barrazza grinder. Mm -hmm. I put them underneath the Fibonacci showerhead in the cone. I waited for the water to course up through the metallic veins at uh, temperatures that rival those of the surface of the sun. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Down into the hulking flagon. And then away I walked with my tankard of... High quality coffee.
1: Yes. I had a similar kind of experience this morning and, and uh, that uh, the, the coffee came down into my, my the hulking flagon. Yep. That, uh, and for whatever reason, I was up really, I was up around five o'clock this morning. Wow. That is early. Not on purpose. It was just one of those mornings. You're up with the chickens as they say. Indeed. And so I, I made the coffee early and my beloved wife uh, didn't get up until about seven. Did she pay and, you to say that? Um, beloved? Yes. That and other adjectives. Okay. Yes. <laughs> And so it was, the coffee had been there in the in the flagon for two hours.
2: So it was stale and scorched it, and burnt? You would think so, but it wasn't. Ah. With, no,
1: with no heat bed underneath it, it was still piping hot. And it, it, it was great as I poured a cup for my wife. Excellent. Yep. yep. So, so, yeah. So yeah,
2: let's say the uh, we're both so eager to get to know, this. <laughs> <laughs> zip, zip, zip. Let's say the listener is thinking, I'm tired of Senor Coffee. Yeah. I'm tired of Dack and Blecker. Yeah. I'm tired of Gurik with their marsupods. <laughs> oh, so man. A little bit of Joey in every cup. What should they do?
1: Well, they should go to RatioCoffee.com. Check out these wonderful wonderful machines, the Ratio 8, the Ratio 6, and coming soon, the Ratio 4. Uh, find the machine they want. It's an investment uh, in, in your coffee future. This is something that you, yeah, if you if once you get it, it's going to be uh, in your life for a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, and then uh, type in the coupon
2: code, which is? anco 3 Q. All right. And that will get them, uh, what, Dave? 15% off. Yes. Aren't you going to ask me what the Q stands for? Oh, yeah, that's right. What does that Q stand for? It stands for quizzical. Quizzical? It's because after you buy the coffee machine, you're going to be asking yourself over and over, why didn't I do this before?
1: That's what exactly what it is.
2: Racialcoffee.com, A-N-C-O-3, Q, 15% off.
1: Check it out. All right, so as we get back into it, we're going to talk about this this the Evans article in just a moment, but can, I wonder if you could comment on one more thing before we do so is I remember from my own graduate seminars uh, a lot of talk about that, um, you know, Thucydides versus Herodotus, that one of the um, implicit or explicit criticisms that Thucydides has of Herodotus is his use of oracles and divine portents and the, the treatment of the divine. Mm-hmm. And i wonder if you could say a, a couple of things about, you know, when Herodotus includes those things in his narrative, the kind of things that Thucydides dismisses. Do you see that as as Rod is including that because that's reflective of things that he himself believed, or is he just recording stories?
0: I think it's largely the first. This is material he himself accepted. Perhaps didn't believe in the sense that a a strict uh, interpreter of Scripture might believe a historical fact about some episode in Scripture, but Herodotus lived in a pre-sophistic world, a world in which uh, transcendent forces were interpreted as having a role in what happened in human life. And so from his point of view, the events that occur in human uh, history uh, have aspects in which explanation requires non-logical, transcendent uh, interpretations. Uh, Moreover, he had access, apparently, to a huge collection of Delphic oracles and uh, other accounts of dreams and portents, which, as I said before, helped people of his day account for what had happened in their societies. And because his purpose, as mentioned earlier, was to record how people remembered things as well as what actually happened— the inclusion of all of these, uh, let's call them metaphysical uh, elements, in the narrative was, from his point of view, a necessary part of keeping the record. It seems clear to me that he was a theist in the sense that, uh, at several points, he comments, divine vengeance was clearly at work in what happened to people who had committed terrible crimes. Uh, Thucydides would not have included such details. But entities lived in a different world. I love the title of uh, Stuart Florey's book, The Archaic Smile of Herodotus, because that's what you have here. It's an archaic vision of how life should be understood and interpreted.
2: Excellent. As a follow-up to Jeff's question, I experienced the same thing in my graduate school studies. Herodotus, uh, pre-rational, superstitious, bad, Thucydides, enlightened, more like us, <laughs> no supernatural explanations. And I, I've studied Herodotus much greater depth than Thucydides. I was always suspicious of that explanation because it doesn't, it doesn't seem to me likely that Thucydides was an irreligious person. And this, the stereotypes seem to match too well contemporary prejudices about the role of religion in people's thinking. Was I off on that? Or, I mean, you you partly answered it already, but if you Mm -hmm. could take it just a step further.
0: No, I think that's a a fair assessment. Uh, uh, Historians of the 19th and 20th centuries, early 20th centuries, read Herodotus and Thucydides from an Enlightenment perspective, in which certain factors that are beyond human understanding and logic are not to be included in accounts of causality. Herodotus did not live in such a world. And it's only been, I would say, since World War II, particularly in the rise of anthropological studies and ethnographical studies, that what Herodotus includes in his history has proven to be a a very valuable resource. I think in the article that we're about to discuss, Evans even remarks that Napoleon's invasion of Egypt uh, increased interest in Herodotus precisely because some of the most important information we have about Egypt from antiquity comes from Herodotus.
2: Yeah, that was a fascinating fact. And nice segue, Ken. We should hire this guy, yeah, right, no to <laughs> come exactly. in. So let's move then uh, to the article itself. And uh, Jeff, maybe you can get started by uh, just reading us a couple of the introductory sentences. Sure. So Evans begins. In choosing my title, Herodotus, Father of History,
1: or Father of Lies, I have betrayed a modernist standpoint. In the ancient world, the occasional falsehood did not vitiate a writer's claim to be called a historian. It is true that we may cite many protestations which might lead us to believe otherwise. Timaeus of Tarimanium is supposed to have stated that lack of truth was the greatest fault of history and he exhorted those of his predecessors whom he had convicted of falsehoods to find some label other than history for their product. While Lucian anticipates von Ranke by announcing that it was the historian's duty to, quote, tell the story as it happened, in actual fact, the the relation between history and accuracy was always equivocal. This seems to have been tacitly acknowledged by Cicero, who gave Herodotus the title father of history. In the opening scene of Cicero's Laws, Cicero, his brother Quintus and Atticus were discussing the merits of Cicero's poem on Marius, and Atticus raised the question of accuracy. Cicero demurred. Accuracy, he suggested, was the business of the historian, not the poet.
2: Excellent, Jeff. Thanks. So, Ken, what do you make of this? Uh, The Ciceronian description, accuracy is the business of the historian, not the poet, and uh, how Evans uh, sets up this article. Right. Um, A little bit further on, In that first page,
0: he also quotes the whole context of Cicero's comment. For in history, says Cicero, everything is meant to lead to the truth, but in poetry a great deal is intended for pleasure. And then notice this, Cicero adds, although in Herodotus, the father of history, and in Theopompus, there are a countless number of legends. What first arises in my mind is that Cicero is acknowledging the fact that history, though intended to lead to truth, can, in a good historian, include legendary material. And I think a careful distinction has to be made by critics in our language between the word lies and falsehoods. There's a difference. When we speak of lies, we're thinking of intentional misrepresentations of truth. When we speak of falsehoods, we may be referring to something which is factually incorrect, but was offered as an explanation without a knowledge that it was incorrect. Herodotus has many falsehoods in his account. Uh, I challenge scholars to find specific lies, intentional misrepresentations of the truth. Now, Plutarch's famous essay on the malignitate, uh, the malignity, the what, what should we translate that? Uh, the hostility of Herodotus uh, mentions what he regards as lies. But in Herodotus's time, he may not have been aware of the fact that some of them were misrepresentations of the truth. Plutarch had 500 years of additional uh, documentation to draw upon.
2: That's interesting. So Plutarch, writing 400 years after Herodotus in Greek, with better sources, you're saying, his, uh, his aggression or hostility, his article on, on that, of Herodotus, he had the advantage of knowing s- some facts better than Herodotus. But you would say Herodotus is not guilty of lies, knowing deception. He's guilty of gently and unintentionally purveying falsehoods.
0: Yes. That's what I would basically say. Okay. Um, at the same time, much of what Herodotus reports, which we can now demonstrate to be non-factual was reported to him by others and accepted, uh, probably he was a gullible traveler. Okay. When he talked with people in Egypt, he was dependent on the tour guides and on the interpreters who uh, translated into Greek for him. And he probably accepted many things he shouldn't have. Mm. He made assertions like all the gods come to the Greeks from Egypt, uh, which cannot be sustained. Right. But in his day, those were not lies. Those were misunderstandings, misinterpretations, or reporting false
2: uh, accounts. Well, there's the title for this episode, Jeff.
1: What was it? I, I missed it. What What did I? Gullible's I, travels. <laughs> 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 I love it. I love it. Yeah, um, that, that's great. I wonder um, if you could. Um, wow. Well, no, actually, I want to save this the question for the. Uh, I think the last good question we talked about um, how. Um, your knowledge of Herodotus has affected your your travels and kind of your Mm -hmm. your response to particular places. But Mm -hmm. so I think we should stick to the the article for now.
2: Okay, well, something that makes for a nice contrast of some things we've already discussed is what uh, the author says at the bottom of page 12. Maybe I'll just read that quote and uh, get your interaction with it, Ken. This is Thucydides. The absence of an element of romance in my account of what happened may well make it less attractive to listen to but all who wish to attain a clear view of the past and also of the same or similar events, which human nature being what it is will recur in the future. If these people consider my work useful, I shall be content. It is written to be a possession of lasting value, not a work competing for an immediate hearing. Now I have to say that Thucydides sounds like uh, many academics I have met and maybe how I have been sometimes where wherein you, you put an apology in front of your work of, along the lines of, this is not very interesting, it's not very readable, but if one person finds it useful, that's okay?
1: What I heard there is Thucydides saying, says said, I'm boring and you're going to like it. <laughs> yeah,
0: and what I hear is everything depends on being useful. Now, what does that mean? An account that has to be useful must have direct uh, value for the reader, or hearer in his case, uh, looking at situations like his. But notice the complexity of the grammar. It's very hard to understand this sentence the first time you hear it. That was not true of Herodotus' statement of purpose. Uh, And notice the arrogance of suggesting that somehow a possession of lasting value is different from a work competing for an immediate hearing, as if to suggest that A work of history cannot be entertaining and still be valid. Uh, A work of history cannot be appealing to the immediate audience without having some value beyond that audience. Um, This is an arrogant statement. And it rises out. Of, I mean, I love Thucydides. He's a, a wonderful author. He's, he's going to throw own. him under the bus here, Jeff. He's, I'm not throwing him under the gotta bus. He's got to say he
2: loves him, but then he's going to throw him under I the love, bus.
0: I love Thucydides, but, and, and that but always erases what's previously been said, right? I love Thucydides, but his purpose is very different. His purpose is, um, is to create a political history. And what we don't see in Thucydides' history is how he made the decisions about what to exclude In Herodotus, we see everything. In Thucydides, we see only what he has judged to be of value for his reader or hearer.
2: Hmm. So in summary, could we say that um, the quote from Cicero read previously, Cicero kind of gets it right. Yeah, A good historian can entertain as well as inform in Hmm. a way slightly different than a poet, but not completely different. Right. Yeah, I think
0: Cicero acknowledges the... Uh, the tension between telling the truth and including the legendary, and certainly modern scholars who've studied Herodotus much more fully than I, have come to the conclusion that what we have in this uh, book is precisely valuable because of its vast scope, its uh, inclusiveness.
1: All right, let's uh, I, let's take a look at another passage from um, from the article. Um, for, this is from the, the top of page uh, 15, where Evans writes, uh, His reputation as a stylist, that is, Herodotus, if anything, increased as time went on. Perhaps it was local pride which, which led Dionysius of Halicarnassus to praise Herodotus, for both men came from the same city. Mm-hmm. The famous passage in his letter to Pompey, which compares Herodotus to, th- to Thucydides and gives Herodotus most of the prizes, has been characterized by one scholar as Dionysius at his worst and weakest. But the admiration for Herodotus' prose was general among rhetoricians. So, uh, is that kind of your experience of Herodotus' reputation as time goes on? Is that um, it? Uh, it doesn't it doesn't uh, keep that kind of that the Thucydidean criticism on him. Well, notice that what appeals to the
0: authors who are quoted on page fifteen—Dionysius, Lucian, Quintilian, Photius, etc.—is the style of Herodotus's writing and not the substance. Um, so, to some degree, yes, the Augustans and the and the Romans appreciated uh, appreciated Herodotus primarily for the vividness of his narrative, for the uh, charm of his accounts, uh, for the variety, stylistic variety of his writing. Uh, but notice that most of the Romans do not address uh, the qualitative substance of his historical approach, and so I would say that. His reputation partially recovers in this period, but it's not until the Renaissance that uh, we get a full-throated approval of the, of the direction in which he was moving. And uh, as Momigliano says in another part of this, uh, uh, quoted in another part mm-hmm. of this essay, uh, Herodotus's place in the history of historiography has begun to um, be recognized uh, only in the modern period.
2: Okay, so this is the famous Italian scholar, Arnaldo Mamiliano mm-hmm. and then Evans is quoting him to say, in, in recent years, Herodotus' reputation has been revived and recovered a little bit. That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, Jeff, you had some uh, some closing questions for Ken as we start to wind down.
1: <laughs> I did um uh, Ken before you you came down the stairs uh, David and I were reminiscing about uh, the trips that we had made with you overseas I I went to Greece with you as a college student and and then we did a trip to Italy together and mm-hmm. and Dave did a trip uh, to Italy and Greece both both with you and so and we know also about your extensive travels in the in the in the greco-roman world and so I'm wondering. Uh, as you've traveled and you've gone to a number of these places that Herodotus talks about how your experience as a traveler has um, or uh, your knowledge of Herodotus has kind of shaped uh, your experience of these places. Mm -hmm. I wonder, yeah, could you say a few things about that?
0: Sure. Uh, You can't possibly go to a place like Thermopylae without thinking about Herodotus' account and I remember standing on top of the Colonus, I think, with you, Jeff uh, reading the modern reconstruction of Simonides. I remember that very well, yes. Yeah, Simonides' epigram. Um, um, it's just very moving. And I've often read that particular chapter uh, to the students as we visit the Colonus at Thermopylae. Or another classic uh, location would be the museum in Delphi, where... You come into the second room and there are Cleobas and Byton, the very two statues that Herodotus has mentioned in book one. And uh, there they still stand as tokens not only of uh, the heroism they were thought to represent by the Argives who dedicated the statues, but the heroism that in Herodotus's account signifies a good life, as he's
2: discussing with Croesus, who are... Truly happy. Mm. I remember taking the bus with you, Ken, from Athens. up. uh, We were headed to Corinth, I think, and we're driving along the coast. And the island of Salamis is off there to the the west, a little bit northwest. And you pointed out to me that's the spot, according to Herodotus, where uh, Xerxes sat on his golden throne in order to watch the naval battle down below. And Mm -hmm. that's a very moving thing to consider. Yeah, yeah.
0: It's sort of like people who visit Jerusalem and can remember every biblical event ever set in Jerusalem. You know, if you know your Herodotus, you can't travel in Greece without thinking about him constantly. Jeff, hmm. did, did you have another question or? Uh...
1: No, I mean the the uh, of course the one that I thought of too is is Thermopylae. And you know, in talking just addressing you know questions of of Herodotus's you know accuracy or or, or lack there thereof, I remember you know, standing on that that hill of the last stand. And you can really envision everything that he describes. Mm-hmm. And the, the geography comes alive mm-hmm. um, just standing there. And uh, the, you know, his, his account just makes so much sense mm-hmm. when you're standing there. Yeah.
0: I don't know if either of you were on the trips where we visited Marathon, but the same is true there. You stand on top of the Soros and you can see where the 6,000 Persians, the 6,400 Persians would have been trapped in the marshes. And, of course, the excavation of that soros has produced exactly what Herodotus described.
2: Mm. So I didn't travel there with you, uh, Ken, but Jeff and I took the bus out to Marathon in 2011 and saw oh. the tumulus and the... Uh,
1: which is an epic trek in and of itself. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we saw the Cave of Pan and so forth, which mm-hmm. is nearby. And the Tomb of the Plataeans. Did That's right. That? Yeah, yeah. So, Ken, we have to wrap up pretty soon, but maybe just one last thing. Uh, You're such a fine, uh, knowledgeable speaker about these things. Um, We're very appreciative. Um, Can you give a little bit of an apologia or a defense to students? Why should young students, both those, or maybe older students, both those who have Greek knowledge and those who can only approach Herodotus via translation, why might they want to read this author and, and what would be their motivation?
0: Well, I can think of many things to say. One would certainly be the inherent delight of uh, the narrative. <clears throat> you can't read much of Herodotus without being amused, uh, cheered. There are, there are tearful passages where you can't help but sorrow for those who have suffered. Um, I think, you know, in a wider sense, this is probably the best window to understand the mind of an archaic Greek who was not Athenian. Um, it has Athenian aspects, but a Panhellenic, Archaic Greek mind. Here it is on display in great detail. And so if you want to understand how people of that period thought about their lives, about their relationships, about causes and links between what's happening here and what's happening there, Herodotus gives you some sense of how a person, an intelligent person of his day would have thought about such things. And... Um, The other thing I think I would say is that there's a deep humanity about this narrative. I've already mentioned the fact that he has kind of a cosmopolitan scope. And the respect that he shows for non-Greeks is nothing to take for granted, because many Greek authors have a kind of arrogance, a cultural uh, uh, pride, which... uh, excludes from their narratives an appreciation of what others have done and what others have contributed to the development of humanity and human human systems. And one final thing I would say is that when you view the whole narrative in its its full scope and you see how things have turned out, you find in Herodotus a classic statement of what uh, Cedric Whitman has called the heroic paradox in Homer, That is to say, the understanding that people who are great often are also doomed. That greatness uh, is an ambivalent achievement of the human being and of human societies. In the sense that um, moderation is impossible for greatness uh, to to be achieved. Mm. And consequently, we have a vision here of... Great people achieving great things and lamenting at the ultimate consequences. One of my favorite scenes is that scene where Xerxes, after building the bridges across the Hellespont, gathers to review all of his troops. And there's that very famous passage, I think it's 7, book 746, where uh, Xerxes congratulates himself on the grandeur of his forces and in the next moment weeps. At reflecting that in a hundred years, no one will still be there. Yeah. Well, there's the paradox. Hmm. So uh, Herodotus sees both sides. He sees the grandeur of this. I, I disagree with uh, the author in saying that Herodotus does not glorify war. At p- points he does, right. especially in a scene like that. And he catalogs all of these troops. At the same time, he's deeply aware of the ambiguity of human greatness. And maybe that's uh, influenced in part by Greek Athenian tragedy, because you see the same thing Mm. in Sophocles especially, where the very greatness and the disaster arise from the same root, Right, Uh, a a character for whom moderation is not possible in the heroic uh, aspiration. Mm. Very well said.
2: Very well said.
1: Excellent. Well, I think that's a a great note to to end on. And so thanks, Ken, so much for for joining us again for a third time. And we look forward to your, your fourth visit.
2: You are most welcome. All right, Jeff. Well, uh, it's time to get out of here, isn't it?
1: It is. Uh, as always, we got some a uh, little bit of business to take care of. Well, but I yes? mean,
2: you know why we have to get out of here? Well Oh no! Oh, that's right. What? What's going on up there? Well, do you hear the banging and the noise and yeah. the hammering? I get so I
1: I sound, I I drown it out. I kind of tune it out. But yeah, now I hear it. But, it's Steve.
2: Steve, who? You know, Lazy Steve from oh. the episode Cranks for the Memories, <laughs> way back when, episode eighteen, I believe. He's up there. Yeah, he's supposed to be here, uh, but Lazy Steve showed up late. Of uh, course, he,
1: Lazy Steve is always correct. late, exactly. So, uh, he can wait a little longer. That's right. If it yeah. was diligent, Steve. <laughs> oh, man, he'd be, down here, uh, he'd be down here running
2: the show. That's correct. That's right, yeah. But we do have to thank some people.
1: Absolutely. We got to thank uh, Ken again. It was always wonderful. It's great to have him back. And, yes. And just astounding the, the the knowledge that guy
2: has. And the depth of expression. Very, very nice. It's amazing, yeah. We need to thank our friend uh, Mishka. Yep. And uh, Mishka had a birthday. We we missed it. Oh no! On the last episode, we didn't mention it. But uh, dear Mishka had a birthday this week. I think it was on uh, Tuesday. That would be February six. Uh, you never say uh, how old a woman has become when she you know gains a year. Right. But she hasn't lost a step. Of course. And, uh, we're so grateful for all of her hard work and happy birthday, Mishka. Absolutely. I hope it was wonderful.
1: Yeah. And also uh, a big thanks to Ken Tamplin and Scott Vinzen. Those great musicians who uh, who keep uh who
2: who, who help us sound uh, hipper than we are relatively hip relatively couple hip. of old guys <laughs> <That's> unlikely a... <laughs> but I sure love those uh, arpeggios and all the the bumper music for the ad so thank you gentlemen for your great generosity so good and before we get out of here Dave you want to say a little bit about the Moss method I'd be happy to do that okay. so Moss method for Greek take you from uh, neophyte to erudite yes if you want to read Herodotus in the way that Ken does and can in the way that he's taught it. I can show you how to do that. Uh, I have this course uh, divided into four modules. I like to say it may not be the best Greek course. I can't pass judgment on that, but it is, in my estimation, the best value for its combination of expertise and uh, an affordable price. So we've got many students going through it from all over the world a couple of folks just finished Module 2, and they launched into Module 3. Excellent. They're fantastic in their knowledge of Greek. They know their person, their number, their tense, their mood, their voice. You name it, they got it. They got it. Excellent. So, and people
1: from all over the world, right? That's right. And uh, so people can join this, and they can become part of this really cool community. And, that's right. And they have direct access to you. That's right? correct. That's so really
2: mossmethod.com. Mm-hmm. Check it out. Excellent. And then also you have a pro- uh, program for learning Latin. That's correct. This is the Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, a series of books by Hans Orberg, Latin teaches itself, I like to call it. And I've developed a program whereby you can study at your own pace, inexpensively, watch other students uh, making mistakes and celebrating victories, learn uh, with them, alongside them in a recorded format. Again, I've got a lot of competition. You know, some folks may be better, I can't say, but the value, I think, is uh, one of a kind. Indeed. So, latinperdm.com slash L-L-P-S-I.
1: All right. Excellent. Hey, hey, listeners, if you want to uh, uh, get in touch with us, you want a shout out, you got an idea, you got a complaint, you got a, a praise, uh, you can write to Dave, Dave
2: at ad nauseum.com. Don't forget that V. Or Jeff at ad nauseum.com. Don't forget that there's a V in ad nauseum. Yes. Contact Jeff. Tell him, Jeff, we like your uh, wardrobe choices. <laughs> We like your pop culture references. Oh, yeah. We like the way that you push back against Dave with all of his bristly irascibility. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bring that on. I would love yeah. to hear it. Yes, exactly. You and- can also check out our website, um, ad nauseum.com, lurch with merch, pick yourself up a hat or a t shirt, let others know that you're taking in the classics and keeping it down. All right. right. And Jeff, uh, yeah. what's what's on tap for, for the next episode, number 142?
1: I think we have another uh, interview, right? Yes, so, we do. So, interviewees, this is rescheduled. Um, a couple of our. Our colleagues from Hope College. That's correct. And who, who are they talking about again? Well, so
2: it's Anne Larson and Steve Maiulo. Yes. And they're going to be talking about a Dutch woman who was a polymath, the Minerva of Utrecht, That's a woman right. named Anna Maria van Skurman Promises to be a fascinating episode. This is, this sounds really really interesting. Yeah. And Jeff, I Mm -hmm. believe that uh, you have the gustatory parting shot to take us out.
1: I do. This is really stupid. I have to actually set it up. All right. um, Have you heard of the band, the Ramones? Yes. Right. Kind of a a seminal punk band. Yeah. The lead singer was a libertarian. Was he really? Joey. That's right. Right. So they, they, um, they made this really stupid, horrible movie called Rock and Roll High School. Okay. And um, is there
2: a food reference in here? There is a food
1: reference. I'm getting around to it. So, uh, but and the the Ramones were famously not great musicians and even worse actors. Uh Oh. Right. And there was one of the Ramones, Dee Dee Ramone, who was so terrible that they tried to kind of eliminate him from talking during the movie. Oh. But they did give him one line and it it was delivered terribly. And that line is, hey, pizza, it's great. Let's dig in.
2: (laughs) Is that a pretty good impersonation? (laughs) That's that's my best. All right. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Thank you.